This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Because it's a kid's book, Margaret. I'll do my best, okay? okay. Yeah, Margaret, you are the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm the culprit. I drag You are the, the swearer. <laughs> Potty mouth. I, I, just, I engage mother mode when I'm recording overdue to make sure that I don't say anything that might be objectionable for What's young mother ears. mode? Mother mode is the way that I talk when I'm around my mother. Oh, <laughs> sure. See, this is why I'm so bad at it, is I'm allowed to swear around my mom. Yeah, see... Oh. Yeah. My mom and I swear at each other sometimes. Yeah, nice. no, we don't. That's not how we roll in my house. Nice. All right, welcome to Overdue. <laughs> this is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name and is the Andrew. Swear words you say to your mother, and the swear words you say to your mother. My name is Andrew, and these other people. Who are they? <laughs> uh, I'm Margaret. I'm Catherine. Uh, Craig is out this week, so to help me get through this book. I, I mean, it can't just be me talking to myself for 45 minutes. So um, I brought on my co-hosts from the show Appointment Television. Yay. Yay. Um, it's a podcast about television. TV rules books suck. <laughs> yeah. which <laughs> I think it's TV rules books drool, Catherine. Oh, okay. But I know you've never been on a sports team, so you haven't had to trash talk in a rhyming method before. It's true. So. It's true. Thank That's you. True. For... Well, do they not? Do they, does trash talk not rhyme when you're doing it in other no, contexts? No, it just it rhymes, but in iambic pentameter. <laughs> you, sir, are a vagabond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Catherine read a book. I did. That she's going to tell us about. Catherine, what did you read this week? I read The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster. And at least once in this episode, I'm going to call him Norman Juster because for some reason <laughs> I originally thought his name was Norman. And I know that it's Norton, but it's one of those things where like it was early in your head and it's hard to hard sure, to yeah. Out. Yeah. No, it's Norton like the antivirus. Yes. Try to remember it that way. Or the That's, anthology. That helps me. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> For longtime listeners, like they'll both be kind of familiar with you guys because you've both been on to guest episodes like individually. But um, in case they haven't listened that far back in the catalog, just like give me a couple sentences about the kinds of books that you like to read. And Catherine, you can tell us like why this particular book. Okay. Okay. Uh, so Margaret, let's let's do with you first yeah okay um <laughs> i like to read victorian novels and ya and children's books and mystery novels and romance novels by which i mean books with a sense of story a lack of contempt for readers especially readers who might be as at least one goal trying to take pleasure in the words that they put into their eyeballs from a page. Mm. Um, <laughs> and um, I like books where there is some sense of moral direction, not even necessarily a lesson is being taught, but it's more oriented against like nihilism. Like I mm. can't, mm -hmm. I, I can't with a 682 page about a white man, Telling me that nothing really matters. Yeah, can't. Sure. Well, actually, nothing really matters, though. Oh. So that's it's fine. It's oh my a God. fine genre. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, favorite white man. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Catherine, what, what's what's your deal? Um, I like to watch TV. Um, but I watch I I watch a lot of books too. I read a lot of books as well. Um, <laughs> No, my, my great backstory is that I, I actually have a PhD in what is supposedly English literature, but <laughs> I, I ended up watching a lot of TV. Instead, I, wa I read a lot of Victorian novels. I love Victorian novels, and that was sort of how I got into um, the stuff that I like the most, which is long stories, serial stories. I, going way back, um, am like a fantasy, like a big giant fantasy trilogies yeah. person um specifically trilogies though like we've i think we've yeah. talked about this before we and have. you've said that like wheel of times is like big yeah 
like 15 book Once you get epics past are not three, quite your thing. I generally find them to be suspect. Right. Mm-hmm. Once you get past three, it's got to be a mystery series or the Barchester Chronicles. Yeah, they're, they're structurally very different. That's a different <laughs> podcast, which I'm happy to also be on. But they are structurally very different. Like, I, I think, you know. Once you get past three, things tend to get a little out of control if you don't have any um, narrative underpinning for what you're trying to do. Anyhow, um, but I also, you know, I was your classic bespectacled fourth grade bookworm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I spent a lot of time sitting on the playground with a book that I had like put under my shirt from the library because we weren't supposed to take the library books outside of the (laughs) school. And then like what a rebel just sitting where I hoped nobody could see me and reading instead of interacting with my peers. You ate a lot of personal pan pizzas. A lot of personal pan pizzas. um, (laughs) A lot of, you know, just, uh, you know what? I actually had this whole thing in sixth grade about food that you could eat easily with one hand so that you could read with the other hand mm-hmm. <laughs> sandwiches are really good personal pan pizzas are not so good Andrew. terrible okay. all right um, well i mean personal pan pizzas are what they gave you for reading a lot was is what i was saying oh it's true yeah, yeah. oh yeah. we didn't have that at my private school what <laughs> reading was its own reward andrew and uh the library didn't stock goosebumps books you know what? what? Reading is its own reward, but pizza is also its own reward. Pizza is a great reward. It's a great it's a good reward. reward. Um, no, Bowling we have to... is okay. I know this because the reward for the first week of summer reading at my toddler's summer reading like summer thing is like a week of bowling. And I was like, two-year-olds can't bowl, but thank you. Um, <laughs> so, it's another good reward. Anyhow, I, I bring this up. I bring up my, my youthful nerddom uh, because it is shocking to me that I had never read The Phantom Tollbooth. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've never read it either, so I'm going to be like, Catherine, you have come at it as an adult and were maybe less than taken with it. And Margaret, you read it as a kid and you have very fond memories of it. I read it as a 10 year old and like wildly adored it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm eager to listen to you guys argue and just like sit back away from the mic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this time you don't have to rule on it. Yeah, it's true. We do a segment on our on our uh, television podcast, TV versus TV, where it gets a little contentious, and Andrew is yeah. uncomfortable with the with the debates. A little huh. bit. Andrew has been done done until the end of time for at least one of his rulings on TV versus TV. Yeah, people get it haunts him to this very day. So. <laughs> No, you would, conflict, guys. you would prefer if there wasn't like winners and losers in conversation, which is a completely reasonable yeah. stance. Oh, have. I thought you were going to say a completely ridiculous thing to do. I mean, obviously, everything is better when there are winners and losers. No, I mean, I, I like when there are winners and losers. I just am better at being a winner than I am at being a loser. Uh, so, Anyhow. So Norman, Norman Justin. Norton. Ha! 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 <laughs> and you almost swore too. So much for mom mode. Ugh, I, I, I will edit it out. It'll all get edited out. <laughs> Norton Juster, yes, was an academic architect and writer. Oh, uh, story checks out. Yeah, he was born in 1929, <laughs> and he's uh, he's still kicking around. Um, and he was a he was a prank boy. He liked to do pranks. Oh, uh, so he joined the uh, U.S. Navy's Civil Engineer Corps in 1954. And um, he, I guess he gets bored. Like this is a common theme yeah. in his biography <laughs> is he got bored. And so he started like writing kind of a children's story that his, an, an officer like reprimanded him for writing. Um, later, when he was in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, he uh, invented a fake news publication as an excuse to interview women who he thought were attractive, which was mm-hmm. like cool, mm-hmm. cool dude, yep. cool. Not ideal. At the, like at the time, I'm sure that this was considered it, like charming given, and roguish. Well, right. I mean, like you've got, just got to adjust the uh, sexual harassment levels accordingly. Yeah. Right. And like then the litmus test you had to pass wasn't no sexual harassment. It was just clever sexual <laughs> harassment. It's true. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Man, if only like if only you got points for style when you were doing crimes and stuff yeah <laughs> like, I mean, and they let you get away me. with it yeah <laughs> if you did a cool enough job 
Um, he created. I mean, isn't that the, what heist movies are all about? Yes, it's true. I guess, yeah. That's Crime that with is like for style. All the oceans movies is they're just like, oh, you scam. It's crime. Right. It's so you can so shiny. You can have it this time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Juster also created something called the Garibaldi Society which was a club that existed exclusively to reject anyone who applied for membership, okay. which is a prank that I can get into. Yeah, that I like. <laughs> so, That's so a to, good prank. Yeah, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good prank. He's a pretty no, good prank gesture. boy. Uh, so to get around to his writing career, he published uh, The Phantom Tollbooth in 1961. Um, it has illustrations by Jules Pfeiffer, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who at the time was like living below him in the same house. Oh. Um, yeah. yeah, so he in Brooklyn, I believe. Yeah, in Brooklyn. So Juster got this grant in 1958 to write a children's book about cities, um, <laughs> but he hit kind of a creative roadblock. And while he was wrestling with that, he was also writing these stories about this about this boy. Um, his name, I think, was Toby originally, but he became Milo mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Um, he showed bits of the story to Pfeiffer, who started doing illustrations. They they had kind of this rivalry where uh Juster would try to describe things that were woo, got some thunder. Yeah. Thunder lightning. Um very, very frightening. <laughs> Juster would try to describe things that were really hard to draw and Pfeiffer would try to draw things that were <laughs> impossible to describe. Cool. Um but yeah, Pfeiffer showed bits of the book to Judy Scheftel, who he would who worked in publishing and who he would later marry. Um, and then she showed an editor at Random House, Jason Epstein, uh, the parts of the book that were done, and he agreed to um, buy the book. So that's that's kind of the route to publication for Phantom Tollbooth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Catherine. And then you can talk a little bit about this, like as we get into the book. But it's like Juster is really into I, not even just like teaching kids how to learn, but just like trying to get them to have fun learning and to see the value in learning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. That, that's kind of what drive like drove him to do that city's book in the first place is like there are all these people growing up who are going to need to take care of all of our cities and they're all in the suburbs now and they don't they're not going to know how to do what they need to do. Hmm, um, so I guess. Do you want to use that as an entry point? Like, what's the easiest way for you to talk about this? Yeah, that's a that's book. a good entry. Um, I I will say I was because I did a little bit of looking up um about him as well, and um he there are a couple of interviews where he kind of talks about uh you know the message of the book and and what he feels. Um, I also just want a very brief sidebar: who writes biography dot com because. This is this is what I got from biography.com on him. He was born on June 2nd, 1929, just prior to the Great Depression. There are still a number of people who attribute that catastrophic event directly to his birth. Like biography.com. So if he managed to write that himself, like that's awesome, but otherwise like citation needed though. I want to read the uh the red pill forum on like that. Yeah, seriously. How yeah, what's the what's the other side of that one? Anyhow. Wake up, sheeple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so I think Jet Fuel Camp Mount Steel Norton gestures. <laughs> uh so the the Teaching kids how to learn and to sort of enjoy learning definitely feels like, to me, um, one of the strongest entry points to the book. Um, And then there was this quote he was talking about uh, from an interview I read. He was talking about how much he loves Marx Marx Brothers movies um, because they turn the world upside down and they look at things from a different way. And then he says, I guess that if there's any message in the book at all, and this is after the fact, I didn't start with this idea. But if there's any message at all, it's that what you really have to do is to constantly look at things as if you've never seen them before or look at them in a way that nobody has ever seen them or turn them over and look at the other side of everything. So he's he's really into uh, taking the everyday object or the everyday um, accepted thing and then saying like, yeah, like, let's let's look through that. The book has a plot. Uh, like I, I, I like that approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm. I don't know if that's that kind of stuff is what you took issue with in the in the book, Catherine. I'll, I guess I'll let you yeah. get to that yeah. organically. Yeah. But 
Right. So just trying to like well, ground the discussion a bit. Yeah. yeah. I, let me just okay. <laughs> because I think I do well. We'll, we'll get there in a sec. So the Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster is about a boy named Milo. Um, he doesn't have uh, an age that I could see. Um, and I believe when in early uh, versions of the manuscript he was like eight or nine. Yeah. But I think they um, they took the age out just in case kids like read his age and decided they were too old to care. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So he doesn't have an age. Um, neither is he in a specific place at the beginning of this book. Uh, mm-hmm. He's sort of just – he's – have you guys read The Stranger I have. Yeah. I have by Albert Camus. Yeah. And the whole point of The Stranger is like, I just do not care about anything. And the sun is really hot. And like, <laughs> I'm like ugh. Um, yeah. For somebody who at the beginning of this podcast was throwing a lot of shade on nihilism, I certainly identified with a nihilistic character in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so she starts out as basically um, a figure for nihilism. He. Ennui. Yes. Uh, he doesn't understand the point of school. He doesn't understand the point of not being in school. He doesn't understand um, what he's supposed to be doing with his life. And he's like hurrying to get home because he's supposed to hurry. But once he gets there, there's nothing he really wants to do. Um, and so the first thing that happens in the book is that he comes home and he goes, I think it's really interesting given jester's uh urban planning things that he clearly lives in a city because he goes up an elevator to the um eighth floor to get to his apartment building although there's no adults anywhere so that's also kind of one of those classic children like where are all the adults um yeah right (laughs) (laughs) he goes i believe his parents also were edited out at some point yeah he like he goes into his house and he's like there's no one there and he's like these toys are dumb and he sees a giant package and he's like, what is that? There's not supposed to be a giant package in here. It's not my birthday. Um, and then because he doesn't really have anything better to do at this time, even though he's, he's like specifically not excited about it, um, he opens the package up and he finds a – he has to put it together. There's pieces and then it's a toll booth like on a street. Some kind of phantom toll booth. Indeed. Um, and so he – there's like a little token and there's a little car. I don't remember if the car is in the package also or it just kind of shows up. Um, but he's like, well, I guess I don't have anything better to do with my time. And <laughs> so he gets in this little car and drives through the toll booth and then he's in a fantasy world. Um, cool. Cool. Yes. A fantasy world yeah. <laughs> designed to reward unusually clever 10 year olds for how clever they are at catching references yeah i i like the second half of this book better than the first part and Mm -hmm. the problem for me with the first part was that i and i don't know if this is because i am an adult or if because i was never going to be super into this even as a 10 year old but he is so characterless and so empty of I mean deliberately like clearly it's a choice to empty him Mm -hmm. of all qualities but (laughs) but I had no qualities to hang my like to care about now why why do you think that is though because I I have a theory but I want to hear what you guys think first why do I think what is why do I think like why why do you like you said it's a choice why why make that choice well it, it seems like it's a he, it's meant it's mostly an allegory right the book is is i remember texting i think both of yeah. you at like two-thirds of the way through this book it's being like, like is this whole thing just going to be an alleg? is it going to be like pilgrim's progress except instead yeah, of for christianity like precocious child it's an allegory for the this is water speech by david foster wallace <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of what i think is what it is right it totally is what, so it is. what it is um, and so the point in order to be allegorical, right, you have to be basically an empty shell that moves through some kind of moral system, some kind of lesson learning system or model for something else. Like the whole point is that you're not the thing. You're a fake version of the thing that will allow us to see the thing better mm-hmm. um, because the thing itself was too complicated. Sure. So, it, I mean, I, I understand that, but it doesn't. 
it didn't help me as an adult. Um, enter. Now, do you do you think? And this, I mean, this may not actually be all that different from the point that you just made. But um, do you think that for the for the age group, that sort of personalitylessness? <laughs> Hmm. makes it like, makes it easier for a kid to like put themselves in Milo's shoes and like see themselves in whatever situations he's in. Um I have two feelings about this. Well, okay. one is Margaret, like you loved this book. Like clearly it I worked did. for you. It did. So, I think it worked for me uh because I didn't really engage with Milo as a character. He just got out of my way and I experienced the story. Okay. Sure. So, yes. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, like, more identifying characteristics could have put up a scrim between me and the action as it was going on. And this way, instead, he was just like a like like a little outline on the ground that was like, put your feet here. Yeah. Which is what I like to argue Bella is basically in the Twilight books as well. <laughs> Catherine is scowling into the corner at my a suggestion about Bella. She's trying to she's trying to reconcile it. Bella has way different stuff going on. <laughs> it's true, but I still we've think not, she's. We've not done Twilight on this show. I feel like Ow. like if it goes long enough, then we're <laughs> just gonna get there eventually. <laughs> I sort of feel like you guys should just skip Twilight and go directly to Breaking Dawn. <gasps> yes. Just read the most banana yes. pants one. Sure. Yeah. Well, I meant like the series of books. Yeah. Oh, sure. True. But yeah. sure, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. Anyhow. So, so yeah, I got, clearly it worked, right? Like you were yeah. able to do the thing that it was designed to do. And I think that there were sufficient illustrations and they were sufficiently engaging mm. that I got a sense of sort of fun in that early part of the narrative from that. And therefore, I didn't need a character that I was like, oh, I see this character fully and relate myself to them rather than like a character. And it's like this character is a window that I look through. Right. Right. Um, well, and it does sound like there's a lot of fun wordplay to be had, like especially yeah, with the accompanying illustrations. Like um, when I was doing my research, I ran into and they, and they were talking about like stuff that that um, Juster did to make Pfeiffer work harder. And he there are these things called the triple demons of compromise. Yeah. And one is short and fat and one is tall and thin. And the third one is exactly like the first two. <laughs> yeah. Which I like. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot so of interesting like, stuff with the design of the illustrations also. Um, sure. But I did just want to say, I think part of also like I maybe as a ten year old, if I had read this, I would have I would have felt differently. But mm-hmm. this is not the only way to write. I mean, you can write a book for a ten year old that is relatable, that is nevertheless right. a character that has a lot of qualities to them. So for right. like the other book that I read for Overdue was Benicula, and those are dogs mm-hmm. and cats that are just chock full of personality. Dogs and cats are kind of the interesting backdoor into children's literature. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of like, so they do a lot of diversity breakdowns um, for whether characters are identified as white or whether they're identified as people of color. Um, and then there's like the third category of books where the characters are animals. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like everybody gets to relate to them equally because they're animals. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. You can kind of put whatever anthropomorphization right. that you want in that exactly. animal's head. Like you don't know how old Banicula is. So you can't. He's be like, a oh, little bunny. bunny. He's like young, Margaret. Okay. Well, then. He's a little baby bunny. Yeah. You don't know how old the dog and the cat researching Banicula are. Fair enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. um but, but yeah, course, there there are lots of books by like Beverly Cleary and um, yeah, Judy Ramona Bloom. Age Six, yeah, yeah, is, for example, a book with a um, lot of a lot of like really relatable kid characters who also yeah, have personalities. They do. Sure, there are a lot of different ways that you can do this kind of stuff. Um, I'm just here to say that this particular way worked for you. Did work for me as a ten year old, right? And as an adult, I find it like what what <laughs> tiresome. Whippersnapper, tiresome. do your homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that was sort of, that's what put me off of the beginning, I think mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as he drives down the road, I also, it took me a while to get to a place where I enjoyed the, the confluence of the messages with the like wordplay and stuff. Mm -hmm. Because some of the 
earliest ones, and again, I think by design, are pretty obvious and, like, silly. Like driving into a swamp called the doldrums. Yeah, or, like, the very first place he comes to is called Expectations, and then he's got to (laughs) drive beyond Expectations. <laughs> and I was Isn't like, there another that? one where he jumps to conclusions. Yeah, there's there there the I kind of liked that one actually. That was a little better. Um, but like, I was like, all right, yes, he's out to save rhyme and reason. Yeah. Well, there's a the ton- princesses. There's a ton of them. So, is there any? Is there one that you hated particularly, and any that you liked in particular, or am I springing too much on you? I did. I hated the spelling bee. And I hated. Was it a bee? He's a yeah, bee who spells oh, things all the time. Man, okay. And I also hated the. Um, there's a bit which is not to do with the book as much as it is my own desire to not come across authority. Um, <laughs> but like, there's a bit in later in the book uh, where he sees that the way that color enters into the world is a guy conducting a giant orchestra and so the guy goes to sleep and he says wake me up in time to conduct the orchestra so that I can get the sunrise going and there can be color in the world again and Milo just doesn't wake him up and like starts it himself and like screws up all the colors in the world and I got like real tense for like a page and a half there Um, Milo Come what on, are you man. doing? You idiot. Guys, guys, this is always what happens. I know, I know. The kids. It reminded me a lot of uh, that bit in Charlie the Chocolate Factory. That's exactly what I was about to reference. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I should say that, especially as we're talking this through, um, almost what's coming through with like a greater sense memory is not just the process of reading the book, but there's an incredible animated version of this by Chuck Jones. Yeah. That's like, I think, 60 minutes long, and it used to air on. It used to air on Cartoon Network like a couple of times a day very late at night. And it would air with the dot and the line. <laughs> yeah. A geometric love story. And I watched those both a ton. And there the dot and the line is another Norton Juster book. Of yes. course it is. Yes. Um, And they do – like I have a very keen memory that is all coming through as we're talking about this. Like, I've got the doldrum song stuck in my head. I can hear the voices of the spelling bee, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So we could be getting an inflated opinion of the book based on the skill, skillful adaptation by Chuck Jones. Which, by the way, Juster hated. Ha! He did. Really? Wow. He said... Because it's kind of star-studded from a cartoon perspective. It is. He said, it was a film I never liked. I don't think they did a good job on it. It's been around a long time. It was well-reviewed, which also made me angry. Um, (laughs) But it played a lot and still does on television. Okay, dude. (laughs) But yeah, like Chuck Jones is is famous from a lot of the Looney Tunes stuff. Um, Voice cast includes Mel Blanc, who also like was Looney Tunes. The man of a thousand voices. Yeah. Mel Blanc. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I can sort of see how, though, if you had written a book that was meant to encourage learning and was designed to leave space for children's imaginations, and then somebody made like a Guga studded yeah. like, TV spectacular out of it, and that ended up being more or as popular as your book, you might be like your nose might get a little bent out a of shape. Bent. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> okay, so. So uh, Milo is in his little car. He's driven through the toll booth. He's managed to get beyond expectations. Uh, he lands himself in the doldrums, um, which is uh, full of like little tiny monsters that are the exact same color as everything around them. So it's hard to even see them. Um, mm-hmm. But it's here that he meets like his trusty companion, Tak, the watchdog. Talk. Um, I obviously love Tak. Who is a dog with a a watch on, like his body is a watch and the rest of him is a dog. Um, And he says tick, 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 and his parents named him Tak and accidentally. um, And they're really (laughs) upset about that. Anyhow, uh, Milo and Tak head off to the place that somehow Milo figured out. He heard the guy in Expectations or something mentioned something. So Milo was like, all right, I guess we'll go there. Um, Dictionopolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he arrives in Dictionopolis, and it's full of words. It's a wordy, wordy, wordy place. Um, and there are five. They're like they're greeted by these five guys. I can't remember what their exact like title is. Their secretaries or 
like d- something. But there are the Duke of Definition, the Minister of Meaning, the Earl of Essence, the Count of Connotation, and the Undersecretary of Understanding. <laughs> and every time somebody says something, like one person, one of them says a word, and then the other four of them say a synonym for the same word. Like that is how- seriously, guys. I'm just sitting here grinning like a dummy, remembering <laughs> how happy this garbage made me when I was ten. <laughs> I feel like this is all, and maybe maybe it's in how it's written and how it's put together that bothered you, Catherine. But like all the all these ideas and all this wordplay and stuff is like right in my wheelhouse. I know, I know, I know. It's And that might just say like too much about me as a person. No, I look, I'm I totally here's here's I think my problem. There's a map at the beginning of this book. And I got Mm -hmm. all excited. Like I saw the map at the beginning of this book and I was like, oh sweet. Any book that starts with a map is going to take a fancy I'm going to need some little chosen one with a fancy sword. And I'm going to need him to go, I don't know, fighting something. Or I'm going to. So just tell me. Tell me that there's magic or and there is there's tons of magic. But it's like anyhow, it was I think the map threw me the map threw me. Um, You were just expecting slightly more epic fantasy and slightly less wordplay. I was expecting slightly less. Uh. Like teaching me, I think is the problem. What yeah. did it? Te- what was it? What else was it trying we'll, to teach We'll get you? to the place where they're teaching me in a second. But let's just okay, fly cool. through the place. So he gets, he gets stuck in this market. They're everyone's selling words to each other, like easy words and fancy <laughs> words and long words and love it. <laughs> Ten dollar words. Yes. Um, and here he meets the humbug, um, and they accidentally tip over a bunch of words, and they get thrown in jail. And everyone's like, they get thrown in jail for six million years. <laughs> And Milo's like, well, shoot. Um, And they're like, well, at least you can talk to the witch. She's been in there forever. But it's a W-H-I-C-H witch. Nice. I like this a lot. Everything. And the witch, while they're in jail, talk and um, uh, Milo, while they're in jail, the witch is the one who, like, tells them sort of the backstory of this place. And, like, once I got some backstory and, like, a goal... I felt better. Right. I didn't have a yeah. goal before. And then I and then it like made a little more sense to me. Okay. So the goal, the point is, or at least for Milo, the point is mm-hmm. that this is a place that's it's like the kingdom of wisdom, and there used to be a king, and he had two sons, and then the king was old and died, and the two sons fought a bunch about whether or not words were better or numbers were better. And it's clearly the, in words. Yes. And the and the so they move to different parts of the kingdom and King Azaz, A Z A Z for words, <laughs> um, moved to he's founded Dictionopolis and he's like the words guy. And then mm-hmm. um the math and magician moved up north to the mountains of ignorance, nearby the mountains of ignorance, um, to Digitopolis. I know your Margaret's just smiling, just like this huge. No, giant. I just yeah, just assume that we're both smiling. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. So we got we got two brothers. They're fighting the math magician and at, at king the king as 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 um, mm-hmm. and but they had these two younger sisters who I don't think were actually their younger sisters. They're just like twin girls that they found somewhere at some point. Um, but they're a rhyme and reason. And while rhyme and reason, Andrew's so happy, I know. <laughs> while rhyme and reason were uh, sort of around, they would help mediate things between their two wacko older brothers who were in this constant fight about whether numbers were better or words were better. And the brothers got so frustrated that they, with the sisters who were always like, just create an order and, you know. Nothing was exciting was going on, so they, like, banished them to the castle in the air up in the mountains of ignorance. Mm-hmm. And Milo was like, oh, shoot, somebody should probably get them back because this place is crazy. <laughs> and you guys are going to need some... lacking rhyme and reason. You guys are going to need some rhymes and reasons back up in this piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it was almost as good as if he'd pulled a sword with a name. Yeah. And then of, I was like, okay, all right, we got a quest. <laughs> but in this book, he wouldn't have pulled a sword. He would have pulled like an S word out of he a rock. He would have pulled a sharpened pencil. Well, okay. we're going to get to the sharpened pencil. That's the magic staff. That comes later. Um, so 
Then there's a big banquet and, you know, everyone eats their words, which means the speech that he makes <laughs> turns out to be, he says, like, let's have a square meal. And they give him a bunch of squares and he's like, these don't taste good. And everyone else said, like, foie gras. And then they had a really good dinner. Um, <laughs> That's cruel, though. I know. It's really cruel. <laughs> uh, and so I love watching Andrew's inner precocious child thrilled with this narrative. <laughs> um, and so then the king, so then Milo manages to suggest to the king that, like, somebody should go get rhyme and reason back and the king's like gee who do you think um and it turns out milo's gonna do it with talk and the humbug i don't know really know why the humbug got got thrown in there but he did so then they set out and then they encounter like a series of you know differently allegorical things and then they get you know to digitopolis and then like you know stuff sets off so that's kind of the the shape of the book right mm -hmm. okay um there are gifts so also narnia as gifts that he gets he, the the, the um, king is as gives him a box of words and then he gets um sounds and he gets a magic staff which is a pencil you know that kind of thing mm -hmm. a pencil so you so you that andrew yeah no i get it i get it i get it all it's it's wonderful and great so you like the second half of this book more than the first half because there was like a goal and a place to where the story was going is that yeah because the because because the quest promised by the map at the beginning of the book right actually yeah, materialized exactly and i i've never really liked the picaresque novel as a thing like I don't the explain for the listeners what a picaresque novel is and oh snap yeah, I didn't call them the readers what? what check me out nice job uh, they are readers presumably <laughs> yeah it oh, would be more apt not in reading this one yeah. mm. it would be more apt in this one than it would be in uh, than it is when I do it on our TV podcast <laughs> on the regs I tend to like direction I tend to like my narratives to have um a momentum. And a picaresque narrative is? A picaresque is an 18th century genre of novel, Margaret, duh. Um, Catherine, I know. I listened to the Zimbris too, okay? <laughs> I'm just trying to make sure everybody listening at home is up on your fancy lingo. I'm just saying. So the point- I'm Just hear it up. Pull you down. Ground you, okay? Fine. My, that's my role. The picaresque novel <laughs> is like, our hero goes on adventures. Like, he's not really trying to do anything, but like, he just keeps walking and like, he came to another inn and now there's a different wacky thing happening here. <laughs> well, and isn't there a, an element of like, crappiness to the hero often too? Yes. Like, he's just not a great hero. It's yeah. like the Don Quixote kind of yes, exactly. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're not, they're not particularly laudable. Um, and in the 18th century, that's important because that actually makes them a lot more human than a lot of narratives than that had come before. But uh, it it takes as its point directionlessness, basically. Um, and I it's just never been the thing that I gravitate toward. And so at the beginning, like we started with a directionless protagonist, and then he like came to this magical place because he didn't have anything better to do with his time. And I was like, I did not feel committed. And then, then at least he decided that he had like some goal, and I felt like I'm, I had a much better sense of what right what I was doing. Okay. So he travels uh, to a bunch of different places, um, and there is a sights and sounds. There's a sights place. There's a sounds place. Uh, there's Digitopolis. Um, and then he gets to the mountains of, of ignorance. The most interesting to me, I liked both sights and sounds, but I liked, I liked sights better. I think it's actually because it, I liked the, he does a bit through the cities of reality and illusion. <laughs> and it tied in for me with Juster's whole urban aesthetics bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so the cities of like illusion is this beautiful city that is fake and nobody is in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, his guide through this place, a kid named Alec Bing, who grows downwards. He likes floats in the air. And as you get older, you grow down rather than growing up into the anyway. Um, and it has to do with point of view and perspective because his perspective stays the same as throughout his whole life because he's always the same height. He just gets closer to the ground. Anyhow. <laughs> Alec points out uh, that the real city reality is like 
all of these people just walking around in a city as though there is a city there, but there is no city there that anyone can see. Like they, like they look like they're walking around on streets and into mm-hmm. buildings, but there is nothing there. Um, and Milo's like, WTF, Alec. Um, <laughs> uh, and so this was, let's see. Uh, okay, so so Milo's like, how did this happen? What is the deal with this like street that everyone's walking around on the street and there's nothing actually here? Um, and Alex says, no one paid any attention. To- they started out in this beautiful city. Everyone was walking around in this beautiful city and it was everything was great. And then no one paid any attention to how things looked. And as they moved faster and faster, everything grew uglier and dirtier. And as everything grew uglier and dirtier, they moved faster and faster. And at last, a very strange thing began to happen. Because nobody cared, the city slowly began to disappear. Day by day, the buildings grew fainter and fainter, and the streets faded away until at last it was entirely invisible. There was nothing to see at all. What did they do? The humbug asked. Nothing at all, continued Alec. They went right on living here just as they would always done in the houses they could no longer see and on the streets which had vanished because nobody had noticed a thing. So... Mm. Like, dark man real dark real dark and a modern urban lifestyle that's really right like just getting us down you know i i bet he has really strong feelings about people like looking at their iphones when they're walking around <laughs> uh yeah i bet he does real strong huh. so as on the nose as that is that is something that i could imagine 10 year old me being like whoa yeah just blow your mind yeah yeah like Wait, that tiny little yeah and adorable Brian. It's also one of the places where the book gets closest to that David Foster Wallace thing. <laughs> um, if you don't know yeah. what I'm talking about, also we're all referencing um, a Kenyan college commencement speech by David Foster Wallace, um, which is lovely, and everyone should go read it. I can't remember yeah. if you guys have talked about it on the podcast, but it seems like you, I, probably, you must have probably at some point. referenced it. Um, it's called "This Is Water." I think you can find a version of it that's yeah. been set to video Look, that floats around every yeah. May or so. Yeah, don't whatever you do. There's like a little like pocket booklet version of it. Like, don't read that because it breaks it down sentence by sentence, and it makes it all much more. Um, like twee and unbearable than I think it actually is if you either see him speak it or read it in like a proper column. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Margaret has feelings about book design. Yeah. No, just like death to over tweeness. Yes. I think, I think Norton Jester could get, could get on with that also. Anyhow, sure. um, <laughs> as, as on the nose as this was, it felt both right to me and it also felt like, I was happy because it also feels like a lot of the beginning of it, even though I understand Milo is full of ennui and like he needs to wake up and not be full of ennui. I didn't I didn't feel like we had really reached a core um, foundation of what I was actually supposed to be learning like what Mm -hmm. what really is the thesis of this book underneath the spelling bee and jumping to conclusions and driving beyond expectations and all that kind of stuff like what Mm -hmm. what what's the beating heart and like this this feels like it um Mm -hmm. so that that i like there's a place like that later also Um, margaret what's your recollection reading this as a kid like what did you take away from it aside from the wordplay did was there anything that really stuck with you like why do you why do you still remember it fondly now do you think it's funny. It is a book that I remember the material details of reading very clearly and the actual words inside the book almost not at all. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I remember I read it in about a day and I read it. We have – I grew up in a big Victorian house. Um, there was a landing halfway up the stairs that had a big picture window on top of it and like a square balustrade across the top. And I sat – on the windowsill of the big picture window about five feet off the ground and I rested my feet on the balustrade yeah, yeah. across the way yeah. and I stayed there reading for pretty much a whole day. Yeah, sure. Now my mom is going to listen to this and she is going to call BS on everything that I've just said <laughs> because it does seem like one of those memories that like I can't possibly be right that that's how I've read it. Yeah. but <laughs> And it also was like, the reading experience that made me feel like, oh, I'm a reader now. Like, this is what I do. Interesting. Is, is I, I sit here and I read these books. And 
I read them in these big gulps and it's just delightful. And it was one of my older brother's books. And so there was like a special cachet to reading it yeah. and really liking yeah. it. Because it was like, oh, I liked I liked the culturally approved thing in the hierarchy of my home. Andrew, mm-hmm. did you have a book like that? Do you remember your childhood being like, I'm a nerd and I read books? <laughs> Man, yeah. Like I did in the fifth grade do a lot of reading Lord of the Rings like with yeah. the cover facing everybody yes. else. Like really <laughs> conspicuously hoping that people would notice yep. how like big this book I was reading was. <laughs> Yeah. And um Margaret, you mentioned like remembering reading the book with without really remembering the words and like the specifics of it. There was this mm-hmm. series of books about I think it was like called The Mushroom Planet. Ooh. <laughs> or something. Uh-huh. Where these like kids flew to this planet with like aliens and mushrooms and stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And like I remember I remember reading the book and really liking it. I remember my mom being excited because she read those books when she was a kid and she liked them. And I remember going to our library and trying to get the sequels and like being really disappointed whenever one of them was like out mm. to somebody else. But I couldn't tell you like I could barely tell you anything Maybe. about what happened in them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean I definitely I read earlier than that, but I feel like that was when I was like, oh, like a reader is a central part of my identity. Sure. See, mine was Wrinkle in Time, which I feel like is one. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Is interesting because it's similarly alleg- I mean, it's like super as an adult. As an adult, it's really easy to look at it and say like yeah. that's an allegory. But it was it had like a bit more shading and bulk to it. Like as a fourth yeah. grader, I didn't I didn't see it quite as what actually has a very similar like message in some ways to yep. Phantom Tollbooth. Yep. But like Meg Murray, I was like, it's very defined. It's very defined. It's very yeah, defined yeah, yeah. and specific character. And I, I, I guess I have to read that again. I haven't read that since I was a probably since I was a teen. I don't think, and so I'm not even really like what you, what allegorical oh, stuff are you talking about? Oh, like, communism is real how, bad. Andrew. That's how real invisible bad. Communism that stuff is. Communism is real bad. Real yep. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that like many waters, by the time you get up there, you're getting into like straight up allegory. Yes. Where <laughs> people are literally going back and like chilling with Noah. Yeah, it really depends on whether the Langle books that you like more are the like Murray ones. Or the Austin. Or the Austin ones. Which I, I haven't even read, but I know. Oh, I like both of them, but they're very different. Um, yes. Yeah, typically the Murray ones. I, like I the think the, the later one that I read was An Acceptable Time. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, which was pretty good. It's a good one, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyhow. Anyhow. Milo. <sighs> All right, Milo Reading. made it. He made it out of the city of reality <laughs> and illusion. He did the symphony bit. Everything turned out fine, by the way. The conductor was like, oh, well, sunrise will be a little later this morning. Um and then he gets to the Silent Valley. I also liked the Silent Valley. Uh, so the point of the Silent Valley was very similar to the point of the City of Reality and Illusion, which was that everyone was in a big hurry. And so they were talking a lot and like did not actually care about any of the sounds that they were making. And so the woman in charge of like keeping the sounds all organized, the sound keeper, got real frustrated with everyone and then just kept all the sounds for herself. And so now the valley is completely silent. Um, and so... Uh, that is a situation Milo actually fixes that by figuring out how to keep a little bit of sound for himself when he's in her cool castle. And then mm-hmm. they like shout, he's, he like, they shout that little sound at the wall and the wall falls down, but everything is still a mess because reason and rhyme and reason are, are not here. <laughs> uh, so he got some, he got a box of words from King Azaz before he left uh, Dictionopolis. He got a telescope from Alec Bings, the point of view kid who grows down. Um, He gets a a little sachet of sounds from the soundkeeper. And then he heads off, he and Tak and the humbug head off to Digitopolis, um, where they are greeted with a sign. Uh, Let's see if I can, where's the the sign that says uh, how far it is to Digitopolis? Which mm-hmm. is something like, uh, man, this book is it. The book is weirdly dense. I will give it that. It uh, right. You're weirdly dense. You're weirdly. Dense. I mean, she is. <laughs> <laughs> Digitopolis, five miles, uh, sixteen hundred rods, eighty-eight 
8,800 yards, 26,400 feet, and then in inches, half inches, and then it says, and then some. And <laughs> their um, inability to pick whether they should go by miles or inches or half inches, and then it becomes this big debate with this guy, Dodecahedron, who has 12 different faces. Dodecahedron. <laughs> um, and then it turns out, like, they're all the same length. Like, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, ah, oh, numbers. Oh, okay. Um <laughs> And then they go into the mines where they mine all of the numbers, which they do. And then I, one detail that I like is that they very carefully mine for all these numbers in this mine, which is also where they meet the math magician. But uh, if they break the numbers, it's okay because they just get used for fractions. And while they're mining, they keep finding these really annoying like rubies and emeralds and stuff. And there's like a big trash pile of all the rubies and emeralds that they find <laughs> while they're trying to find all of the numbers. And the math magician gives him a magic staff. So they're like, sweet, I got, which is a pencil. So they got the magic stat. Oh, he learns a little bit about infinity also. He tries to climb to an infinitely tall tower. And you're like, Milo, buddy, when will you figure this stuff out? Come on. (laughs) You cannot get to the top of that one. Um, Everything is literal, Milo. (laughs) (laughs) But it's great. I mean, all of this is very, very perfectly oriented to reward like a 9 to 12-year-old with a healthy self-regard. Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> did you like Wayside Stories? Do you remember those I did. books? I hated I those. I did like the Wayside Stories. Fair enough. Man, the name is tickling uh, the Lois brain. Lois Sackar, who also wrote Holes. Yeah. Which maybe you've read, Andrew. Oh, okay, yeah. But Wayside um, Story also felt like it was sort of, it had a similar structure. It has some very literal puns. Yeah. Um, And that's the chief well of its humor. Yeah. Um, and then, like, a graft of absurdism on top of that. Yeah, which was very upsetting um, for me. <laughs> Did you like the Piggy, <laughs> Miss Piggy Wiggle books? Laura Miss loved Piggle Wiggle? Them, right? Yeah, Wiggle. I love those books, and I have been trying to get Craig to read <gasps> one for the show forever and ever. You should. I'd love oh, to hear that. Craig, you gotta yeah, do like that. Yeah, every, like, every children's book week, I think it comes up and yeah. gets swept and away And those in ones are also, it's like, it's like, um... Like very like her magic curses always create like very very literal manifestations of bad behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. Like I think if you lie, like your mouth belches out like a cloud of smoke, and then like that cures you from lying, sort of thing. Am I, <laughs> is that ringing any bells for you, Andrew? Yeah. It's. I mean, they were very biblical punishments in a lot of ways. But, but she's <laughs> also got that sense of sort of like a life turned upside down, like. She's I mean, she really, did literally really live in an upside, upside down, down house. house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or whatever. <laughs> with, like you could use the like chandelier on her floor ceiling as like a campfire and like she was great. It's basically like if Mary Poppins like had the power of God to mete out punishments. She basically but, like, did. Yeah, true. But Mary Poppins likes to pretend like she doesn't have the power right. of God though. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Spiegel always, always it's it's apparent. Yeah. yeah. So Catherine, let's like I mean, do you, do we need to wrap up the story? Oh, yeah. He climbs like, up I, the I mountains. Wanna... He, he gets up the mountains of ignorance. There are demons there. He fights mm-hmm. off the demons using With all his of knowledge, his, probably. Using yeah. all of his gifts. Um, and then he, there's Rhyme and Reason are up there. And they're like lovely, lovely ladies. And he rescues them. And they all get back. And then the kingdom is fixed. And everyone's super happy. Um, and Rhyme and Reason, like, he's like, I made so many mistakes. And Rhyme and Reason are like, it doesn't matter if you make mistakes. You just have to learn from them and um there's a he's been traveling with this dog as a watch the whole time and at one point they're like how will we ever get out of this thing and they're like wait time flies and then they like grab the dog and he flies away um <laughs> and <laughs> um and uh, oh at the very beginning um he's like i'm gonna rescue rhyme and reason and uh king is as is like okay that sounds great there's like one thing i should probably tell you but i'm i'm gonna wait until you get back um and then the math magician says the same thing so when he finally does and he gets back and he's like what's the one thing and the king is as is like this whole thing was impossible but i didn't want to say anything but anyway you pulled it off <laughs> um and which is also of course a deeply embedded in the, yeah. the ethos of this book um mm-hmm. And then, so he's like, cool, and he goes back home, and he feels like people must be worried about him. Turns out he's only been gone an hour, um, goes to sleep, or goes to school, comes back the next day all excited to do another adventure, and, like, the the phantom tollbooth is gone, and there's a little note that says, like, somebody else probably needs it. 
Um, and now, of course, Milo's like really sad that the Phantom Tollbooth is gone. But while he's thinking about it, he's like, but I've got so much now to do in my life because I'm capable of seeing the world and engaging with it in a meaningful way. And right. that is the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like sort of the critiques that are embedded in um, reality and illusion and the Valley of Silence are very much like child point of view critiques of adults. Mm, interesting. Right? Yes. Um, where if you're a kid, like – Everything in the world is new to you and you feel a great deal of impact from it. Whereas if you're an adult, you're like, darn it. I've seen all of these things a million times and like, I got to get to work. Yeah, right? sure. Um, and you talk about things and you talk past each other in a way that is very apparent from a child's point of view. Um, and it's in fact skewed from a child's point of view because it everybody's like the adults in Charlie Brown. Yeah. Yep. Right? So if you're playing with those ideas where it's like uh, grown-ups just don't observe anything and grown-ups talk nonsense, right? And you're like, oh, and like here's this kid. He's going to swoop in. He's going to save all these adults from their From their apathy. Nonsense. Yes. Exactly. It's like a very – it's a very gratifying narrative to be presented as a precocious child. With yeah, a, I can see a that. Healthy self-regard. As so, as an adult, where the scales have imagine. now fallen back in front of my eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite yeah. as powerful, but no. I can so, totally see that. Yeah. Yeah, Catherine. Let me. I know you didn't. You weren't in love with this book. I I, I imagine it's one of those cases where you just didn't read it when you were the right age to read yeah, it, which so. we've talked about a lot on the show. Mm -hmm. But like. In talking about it with us, like, did you, has your opinion about it changed at all? Like, where where do you come down on this book, like, to, to wrap up? Um, I would not recommend this book to an adult who has not read it. But okay. I would absolutely give it to my 10-year-old daughter. In eight years. In eight years. <laughs> when she exists. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she'd love right. it. I mean, I think I can totally I can totally see that. I think I would love to have her. It is also a book that as a parent, like I could imagine giving to my child and loving that they were tickled by it. Yes. Um, yeah. There's something deeply appealing about the image of a kid laughing at beyond expectations. Um, yeah. I myself, however, am now am now a shriveled, sad. Old You're beyond person. laughing at beyond you, expectations. I mean, you can look at us, laugh at it, and <laughs> yeah, try and right. like dimly recall what your life was like when you, <laughs> you need had a pun the on capability to, to really make you light up like a Christmas joy. tree. Yeah. I do, I do. That's right. <laughs> All right, guys. All well, right. Um, thank you for for coming on the show and like help helping me out. Our I pleasure. Really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, Andrew, um, for having us. It's been a delight to be here with Catherine. Yeah, rather fun. than just alternating from Catherine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you guys want to find out more about the show, you can go to Overdue Pod on Twitter or um to Overdue Pod on Facebook. You can also email us at overduepod at gmail.com. Um, our website is www.overduepodcast.com. Up there we have links to the books that we have read, the ones we are going to read, um, our Patreon projects, our RSS, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher feeds. Um, if you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us because it helps us rise in the rankings and it just makes us feel good. I think Craig, wherever he is, whatever he's doing, would feel good if he saw some extra reviews coming this week. Um and yeah, I guess that's, I mean, we'll just do a short version of the blurb this week. I don't, I don't think I need to go through the whole thing. Um, um, Margaret and Catherine, if they want to find you guys and if they want to find out more about the TV podcast that we all do, oh yeah. uh, why don't why don't you guys tell them more? Well, if they felt like listening to me swear extensively and colorfully, they can search for appointment television in the iTunes store and they can hear us talk about TV every Thursday. Um... They can also find out more information about that at the website atvpodcast.com. <laughs> Good one, Margaret. Yes. Yep, that's it. That's yep. the one. Uh, or follow us on Twitter at atvpodcast. They can find us on Facebook at Appointment Television. Mm -hmm. And if they want to talk to me specifically, they can find me at Mrs. Friday Next. 
Uh, it's a great choice, and they should definitely make it. You can mm-hmm. also find Margaret and her her bosom buddy Sophie at who uh, you may remember from the Flowers in the Attic episode. Yes, right. um, at lots of cross branding. That's opportunities right. Just, in this group, it's, it's a rising tide yeah. lifts all the. Um, <laughs> uh, they have a great newsletter called Two Bossy Dames." I don't know when this episode is going to be coming out, but they just wrote a thing about the late lamented website, The Toast, which I'm really oh. excited to read and weep about. Um, I, I am also on appointment television with these two guys. Uh, you can find me. I write about television for vulture.com. Um, and she does a great job. Thanks. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at cave and Aaron. Okay, guys. Uh, thanks again. And to all the rest of you, Craig will be back and we'll be back next Monday with another episode until then all of you guys try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.